Radio Orbit, KOPN, the secrets of everything. Coming up, five minutes. My name is Mike Hagan. I'm your host. I'll be here for the next three hours, and uh, we're going to have uh, uh, an interesting evening here, an interesting morning lined up. We've got um, uh, my guest tonight uh, will be Kent Stedman. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Kent, uh, but he is the genius behind cyberspaceorbit.com. If you're not familiar with Orbit, 
Kent's going to be with us in about an hour, so uh, you've got an hour to go check out his website at www.cyberspaceorbit.com. C y b e r s p a c e o r b i t dot com. Cyberspaceorbit.com. So yeah, Kent's going to be with me in about an hour. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, oh all kinds of stuff. Uh, we're going to be talking about the sun. Um, incredible things going on uh, right now on the sun. We're going to be talking about uh, the most recent uh, news from Mars and uh, uh, from Saturn. We're going to be talking about an incredible archaeological investigation that we're doing uh, in Ireland right now. So um, uh, lots going on, and um, we'll uh, we'll talk to Kent at the top of the hour and uh, between now and then I'm just going to go over some news and some relevant uh, some related stories to the stuff that uh, Kent and I will be talking about and um, until then uh, we're going to mix in some music as well so we'll, uh, we'll start out with, uh, with a little bit more music right after I get done uh, talking about things here real fast and uh, then we'll get into uh, then we'll get into orbit alright
till the end of the world on Radio Orbit, only on KOPN 89.5 FM, mid-Missouri source for in-depth news, diverse talk, music of the world, and Radio Orbit. It's more than radio. It's Radio Orbit, community radio on KOPN 89.5 FM, serving Columbia, Harrisburg, Marshall, Mexico, Tibet, Tipton, Elm Tree, Huntsville, and points all around mid-Missouri. My name is Mike Hagan. I'm your host, Radio Orbit, every Sunday morning from 2 a.m. to 5 a.m. As I said a couple minutes ago, my guest is Kent Stedman tonight. Kent is the genius behind CyberspaceOrbit.com, a former uh, uh, art professor at the City College of San Diego, I think it was, and a great musician, an artist, a writer, uh, but also an investigator of things mysterious, a seeker, if you will, kind of like myself. Uh, so, Kent and I are going to be talking about all kinds of different things tonight, and uh, uh, he'll be with us here in just about, uh, oh, about 45 minutes or so, maybe maybe an hour. Just got to get him on the phone here from Seattle, uh, Seattle, Washington, at uh, at 2 o'clock in the morning. So, so that's never easy. Uh, but before that, let's just talk a little bit about we're gonna, what we're going to be talking about. Uh, Radio Orbit, in general, is going to be, this is the first uh, edition of... Uh, of Radio Orbit, the first broadcast, and uh, I think I'll do a quick explanation of what uh, what we're going to be doing here. Uh, Orbit is going to be an investigative show uh, that just looks into the mysteries of our world. Um, the secrets of everything is uh, sort of the way I like to think of it. And every week we'll be talking to, um, to a different person uh, in lots of different areas of endeavor. And um, the one thing that those, uh, that those things will have in common will be... Uh, well, they're probably a little bit outside the mainstream and uh, probably things that you don't hear about every day. So uh, tonight will be no different for sure, and we should set the tone very well with, uh, with Kent Stedman. And like I said, www.cyberspaceorbit.com. If you're listening uh, to the program and you want to check out uh, what Kent's all about, go to cyberspaceorbit.com, and uh, you can see what he's up to there. So. Okay, um, let's get into some news here real fast. One of the things that I, that I would li- like to add about Orbit, uh, what we're going to be doing is um, kind of pushing established boundaries, and uh, we have a tendency in our, in our culture uh, and in our society to assume that we've got everything figured out and that we know, uh, uh, we know exactly the way things work um, when it comes down to our own bodies and minds uh, and also when it comes to our universe, uh, the the world in which we live, and um, Orbit is going to kind of dispel that rumor because, in fact, we know very little about, uh, well, really about everything, and uh, that's what we're going to be doing is trying to uh, trying to learn a little bit about the things that we don't know as opposed to assuming that we know everything. Because when you assume that you know everything, well, that's when you stop learning, and uh, so we're going to keep uh, we're going to keep learning here. Anyway. Um, I'm going to put on uh, one more song here and uh, let Travis, my buddy, come in here and clean up a little bit and grab his stuff, and then uh, we'll get right on with it right after this. All right, thanks. This is Mike on Radio Orbit, KOPN.
Laugh as the Sun, Russia Root, KOPN Orbit Radio. All right. Now that we're settled down here, we can talk a little bit about what's going on in the world and what's going on outside of the world. Um, the first story I want to talk about is uh, something that came from the Sydney Morning Herald uh, in Australia just a couple of days ago on the 22nd. The, uh, the title of the article says, The Multiverse Theory Has Spawned Another, That Our Universe Is a Simulation. <laughs> so uh, this story is uh, actually pretty interesting in light of the fact that we were talking about a couple minutes ago, the fact that we, uh, we tend to assume that we've got everything figured out, especially cosmologically when we talk about the, our universe and the way it was created and where it came from and where it's going and all those things. And in fact, we actually have no idea, and this is a great article that, uh, that actually proves that uh, all of the so-called experts... Even though they have a lot of great, uh, interesting theories and hypotheses and things like this, well, that's really all that they are, and uh, uh, makes it pretty clear here. I'm going to read a couple clips from this story here, and uh, uh, we'll move on to some other stuff. But just to sort of set the tone here, if you've ever thought life was actually a dream, take comfort. Some pretty distinguished scientists may agree with you. Philosophers have long questioned whether there is, in fact, a real world out there or whether reality is just a figment of our imagination. Then along came quantum physics, who unveiled an Alice in Wonderland realm of atomic uncertainty, where particles can be waves as well as solid objects, and they can dissolve away into ghostly patterns of quantum energy. So uh, uh, this goes on to say that um, uh, now some scientists are suggesting that it should be taken seriously, and this is the idea of the matrix concept, the holographic universe that Michael Talbot wrote about. We may be a simulation, creations of some supreme or super being, muses Britain's astronomer Sir Martin Rees, a staunch advocate of the multiverse theory. He wonders whether the entire physical universe might be an exercise in virtual reality so that we're in the matrix rather than in the physics itself. Anyway, quite a long article here uh, talking about this, and uh, I mentioned Michael Talbot's uh, Holographic Universe, a great, uh, great book by Michael Talbot uh, based on some of the work by uh, David Bohm, um, who's uh, just been a an incredible mind in the uh, uh, in the area of subatomic and quantum physics over the over, over the last uh, last couple of decades. So, anyway, uh, if you ever wondered, maybe that's it. You're living in a you are living in a dream. What's the difference between a dream and reality? You know, have you ever had a dream that was so real that uh, if you wouldn't have wake uh, if you wouldn't have woken up, you know, how would you know? I always wonder. Uh, I always wonder what happens when you die. You know, perhaps, uh, perhaps that's what it's like. It's like waking up from a dream uh, in another place, and they just move on to the next, uh, to the next dream, dream a different dream, as it were. So, anyway, interesting stuff coming out of the world of physics, and uh, more confirmation that the experts, uh, although they are uh, certainly experts at some things, they really don't know what's going on. And uh, I appreciate everything that they've learned, and I, tr and I appreciate the opportunity that they give us to learn. Um, but I always like to make it clear that uh, when it comes to this sort of stuff, uh, it is the journey, not the destination. I think uh, the ultimate answer is something that is uh, never attainable. And maybe that's uh, it's interesting, actually, when I, when I go back and look at this article, they say, uh, now some scientists are suggesting it should be taken seriously. They say... Uh, uh, <laughs> They have no problem describing, well, let's just say this. It's, it's amazing that scientists have finally had to admit that the design of the universe is so perfectly crafted that it indicates intelligent design, uh, but, they, uh, uh, but they still won't use the word God. 
and uh, it's such a difficult concept for science, uh, but uh, to actually be um, uh, to actually do it the right way, I think at some point there has to be uh, a synthesis between the scientific and the mystical, because uh, when push comes to shove, at the end of the day, there's always that big question. There's always another question mark. So, anyway, let's move on to some other stuff here. Uh, let's see. Here's a story from The Guardian in uh, London. Crash mission to deflect earthbound asteroid. Project given high priority by Europe's space agency. Now, by the title, you, uh, you might assume that an asteroid is actually coming toward the planet and they're going to try to try to knock it out. It actually says crash mission to deflect earthbound asteroid. At least the way this article is written, uh, it doesn't appear to be an imminent threat, uh, something that they're doing uh, because they need to. It looks like an experimental thing where they're going to uh, they're going to fly a couple of satellites up to a uh, a particular asteroid, and uh, well, uh, they're going to use some real high technology. And what they're going to do is take a spacecraft called Hidalgo, and uh, they're just going to smash it into the asteroid as hard as they can at 22,000 miles an hour, and uh, and just watch the fireworks and see. See what happens, um, and apparently the idea would be to knock it off course, change its orbit enough where it wouldn't uh, wouldn't be a, uh, a threat to the planet, assuming that it were uh, that it were an inbound asteroid that had uh, that had some had some bad news for planet Earth written on the side of it. So, so anyway, they're talking about this sort of stuff pretty openly now. Um, uh, for the last few years, uh, if you follow these sort of things, um, we've had. A tremendous, uh, what it seems to be a tremendous increase in uh, uh, awareness of NEOs, what we call NEOs, that stands for Near Earth Object, um, or sometimes they call them NEAs, Near Earth Asteroids. Uh, in any case, um, the NEOs, uh, there's a load of them flying around out there. In fact, there's about 1,200 that have been identified um, as what they call Earth crossers, which means that at some point in time, if the, if the timing was right, that they could actually hit the planet. They've identified 1,200 or so of these objects. Of course, there's no way to know how many of them there really are out there that have our name on them because, well, you just have no frame of reference. Uh, uh, we just started counting, and basically you just keep counting because you have no way, you have no way to know what the, uh, what the end count is. So in any case, uh, we've got, um, got quite, a, quite a few of these space agencies and uh, defense uh, uh, agencies actually around the world that are, uh, that are looking pretty seriously at this, uh, this topic of an inbound asteroid or an inbound comet. Uh, something that actually might be a danger to the planet. If you remember a few years ago, uh, there have been a couple of movies based on that. I think there was a movie called uh, Deep Impact with uh, Morgan Freeman and, of course, uh, Armageddon with Bruce Willis and uh, uh, Ben Affleck and uh, the dude from Aerosmith's daughter, who uh, Liv Tyler. Yeah, she was worth that movie alone. So, anyway, um, it's uh, not new uh, to be talking about it, but uh, it's not just in the movies. It's something that these guys take as a serious, uh, a serious potential. And um, after they saw what they saw uh, back in 1994, when uh, when Shoemaker Levy whacked into Jupiter, and we got to watch it live. Well, not everybody got to watch it live, but uh, the priests at NASA got to watch it live, and then they edit, uh, they edit down whatever they think is uh, uh, suitable for public consumption, and then that's what, uh, that's what you and me get to see. But if you're sneaky, uh, there are some other ways to get a look at some of this stuff. So anyway, um, Shoemaker-Levy uh, hit Jupiter uh, back in 1994, and uh, it, uh, it showed that the idea of a, of a planetary object having an impact with another planetary object is not something that is uh, relegated to the distant past. Uh, it's something that occurs... Uh, right now, 
all around the galaxy, all around our solar system, and uh, really we live in a pinball, uh, we live in sort of a pinball machine. There are all kinds of things flying around out there, bumping into one another all the time, and um, the fact that we stay unscathed is, uh, well, it's actually a miracle on one hand um, and a gift, but on the other hand, there's also a whole lot of space out there, and although it may seem like there's a whole lot of objects, the space is so great and so unfathomably huge uh, that at least dangerous objects uh, of the size that might um, might be something that could hurt us, those things don't uh, don't hit us all that often. Of course, uh, the Earth is marked with many uh, much evidence uh, that it's happened in the past. Um, there's theories that that's what wiped out the dinosaur and again I use the word theories because they just don't know uh, there are uh, lots of other uh, uh, theories out there for what happened to the dinosaurs and what happened uh, to um, to bring the mammals up um, to the top uh, top of the food chain here on planet earth so uh, so that's uh, that's something going on about asteroids um, Mars uh, speaking of asteroids if you look at the if you look at the planet Mars, you'll see that the surface is just uh, popped. It looks like it just has uh, craters and pockmarks all over it uh, from, from these impacts that have taken place over time. The moon is no different. And if you stripped away all the vegetation and the water uh, from planet Earth, you would see uh, a, very similar, uh, a very similar body. You'd see a round, roundish sphere, but it would have a whole bunch of dents and craters in it uh, because the Earth is no different than any of these other objects. It's been whacked plenty of times. And it will be whacked again in the future. Uh, it's just a matter of when, not if. And so apparently these guys are trying to uh, use uh, technology to, uh, to mitigate that if it might occur. Okay? Uh, they're, by the way, they're calling that mission Don Quixote. And I always like to look at the NASA mission names because uh, they, uh, they, they, they tend to give hints and clues about what they're really talking about because they're not always upfront about what they're doing. A great majority of the NASA projects uh, are military projects, and um, there have been a great number of, uh, of space-related uh, missions uh, that, the, that the public, uh, even though NASA is a publicly funded agency and uh, supposed to be not an intelligence agency. And, uh, the information gathered by NASA is supposed to be available uh, to the general public. In any case, that's not always true. And um, uh, NASA does a lot of things with your tax money that they don't tell you about. So if you're interested in this sort of stuff, well, just get interested. Start uh, contacting these people and talking about it and getting involved. And a great place to start is www.cyberspaceorbit.com. You can find all the links from Kent's site. In fact, I'm going to switch over there right now and see what's going on over at Orbit. And um, we'll talk about uh, another story here real fast. Ammonia on Mars could mean life. The European Space Agency has a, uh, a Mars uh, craft that's, that's orbiting the planet right now, and uh, they're finding um, a significant amount of ammonia uh, in, the, uh, in their spectrometry tests. And um, that uh, is something that is interesting because ammonia is, uh, doesn't hang around for long. It, it dissipates from the atmosphere, so it would be something that uh, uh, that would have to be being replenished. And um, if it was uh, if it wasn't being replenished, um, it would just disappear. So there's a source for that somewhere, and there are really only only two sources for um, ammonia. Those are either active volcanoes or microbial life. So uh, I don't see any active volcanoes. There hasn't been any evidence of that, uh, and 
Uh, apparently, uh, that leaves one other option, and that's microbial life. So it's very possible that there may be life on Mars, rudimentary life. Uh, there may be other kinds of life, too. Who knows? Um, actually, this is not a big, uh, a big news flash. Again, um, back in 1976, uh, way back then, almost 30 years ago, uh, when the, um, uh, the Viking mission... Uh, actually, two Viking missions went to Mars, um, and uh, they um, performed a couple of similar tests. The, the Viking 1 mission actually landed on Mars and did a, uh, did a soil analysis, uh, and actually the initial results of that test were positive for some sort of microbial life. That, uh, that news got quickly adjusted and uh, kind of went away shortly thereafter, and there's been a, there's been a continuous... Um, a debate about that uh, ever since in, the, in those, those particular circles. Uh, but um, in any case, uh, 30 years later, they're kind of confirming what they said originally back in 1976, albeit through a little bit of a different methodology. Um, but anyway, uh, slowly but surely, if you haven't noticed over the years, they've been, they've been just slowly uh, talking about water on Mars, and then they talk about life a little bit, and it seems like they're just sort of trying to condition people to get ready to accept that fact. I think they're really dragging their feet <laughs> but uh, again water is something that uh, that we know is on Mars now um, I believe it's in liquid form as well as uh, solid form and in, in, in the ice caps around the ice caps around the planet uh, but uh, there's uh, some compelling evidence that there's actually liquid water on planet Mars um, of course uh, there's also great evidence that there's liquid water on Europa uh, one of the um, uh, one of the moons of Jupiter and in fact, uh, water is not that uh, not that rare of a uh, of an element. Well, it's not an element, not that rare of a molecule, and uh, it does appear quite frequently uh, throughout uh, uh, throughout space. And water is one of those things that, as far as we're concerned, is required for life. We have no way really of knowing um, if water is required for life everywhere. It seems that uh, at least on this planet, it is a requirement. Um, but that again is certainly. Uh, uh, just speculation because we've never experienced it anywhere else. So, anyway, interesting stuff going on on Mars, and uh, uh, the Saturn uh, probes are actually cruising around, finding, f sending back some great images and some interesting stuff about Saturn. And in fact, there's water, uh, there's water in some of the uh, atmosphere of the rings on Saturn. We're finding out now too. So, anyway, so that's uh, so that's that. Okay, the next thing we're going to talk about here. Eh, what time is it? It's about 2.30, 2.35. I want to talk about the sun. When Kent gets on the air with us here in about uh, 25 minutes or so, we're going to be talking about the sun. And um, I'm going to do a couple of stories between now and the top of the hour to sort of explain uh, uh, some of the current events and the activities and the uh, things that we're seeing on the sun. Very interesting, actually, and astounding if you follow this stuff. The sun has gone through an incredible period over the last... Uh, four or five years, and um, it has sort of defied its typical typical behavior. Uh, the sun follows an eleven year typically follows an eleven year uh, what they call a sunspot cycle, and uh, every eleven years we reach what we call solar maximum, and in between those eleven years uh, we 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 reach what we call solar minimum. And if you picture sort of a sine wave uh, bouncing up and down over that uh, over that center point. That's sort of what the solar uh, uh, cycle looks like. Every 11, 11.2, 11.3 years, plus or minus, uh, you have a solar maximum. Well, the last maximum 
uh, was supposed to be in the year 2000. Prior to that, it was 1989. Uh, then in the year 2000, we had uh, what we thought was solar maximum. Interestingly enough, the uh, solar maximum of 2000 didn't seem to go away. It's now 2004, and um, uh, we have seen unprecedented activity on the sun uh, in the last few years. And in fact, last October... Uh, was just remarkable what happened and then again just a couple of days ago we've seen uh, coronal mass ejections and, and uh, uh, very very powerful flares that just uh, really are, are unprecedented and so anyway we'll talk about that in just a few minutes here I'm gonna put on some music and uh, take my time for a couple minutes and get things set up with Kent then we'll come back talk about the Sun and then we'll talk to Kent Stedman here on Radio Orbit KOPN FM 89.5 Columbia. Fingers counting, we have each line connects 
around the sun appeared. Fall the last of you, child, don't be. Seven oceans come on the shores of the sea. It's a typical situation in these typical times. Too many choices, and yeah. It's a typical situation in these typical times. Too many choices. Everybody's happy. Everybody's free. Keep the big door open. Everyone will come around. Why are you different? Why aren't you that way? If you don't get in line, we'll away. Sense of sound, four seasons turn on and turn on. I can see three corners from this corner. Two's a perfect number, but one around and I'm this happy. Everybody's free, we'll keep the bedroom open. Everyone will come around. Where are you different? Or are you that way? If you don't get in line, well, I'll be where we are. Everybody's happy, everybody's speaking. We'll keep the legs all open. Everyone will come around. Well, he's different. Well, he's that way. If you don't get in line, well, I'll be where Situation in these typical times, too many choices. It's a typical situation in these typical times, too many choices. We can do everything about it. Too many choices.
Matthew's typical situation from under the table and dreaming. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN, about 2.50 in the a.m. Going to be talking to Ken Stedman from Cyberspace Orbit in just a couple of, uh, couple of minutes here. But uh, let's talk real fast about the sun before we get Kent online. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about what's happening, uh, uh, what's happening recently. Uh, let's see. Where, uh, where are my notes for that? Um, we want to talk about that. We want to talk about that. The magnetic field. Let's just put it this way. Um, there have been quite a, bit, quite a few stories that have come out recently talking about the sun and uh, what, uh, what the sun is potentially capable of doing as well. The sun is 99.9% of the mass and the energy of our solar system. So when the sun burps everything is affected profoundly whether you think it is or not the entire heliosphere the entire planetary system the entire solar system so anyway uh... here's a story from ananova.com solar storm could spark catastrophe scientists are warning that a perfect space storm that occurred 144 years ago could happen again at any time with catastrophic consequences newly uncovered scientific data has shown that the true extent of history's most massive electromagnetic storm which blew up on the first couple of days of September 1859. Uh, uh, they go on to say that um, what happened in 1959 was a combination of several events that occurred on the sun at the same time. If they took place separately, they would, they would be somewhat notable events. But together they create the most potent disruption of Earth's ionosphere in recorded history. What they generated was the perfect space storm. Now, what people have to remember, a couple of things here. There's a little bit of disinformation in that story. First of all, 150 years ago, they had very, very, very rudimentary means of measuring this sort of thing. So they actually have no idea what happened uh, back, in 19, er, back in 1859. In addition, uh, the technology that we use now is all electromagnetically based. In other words, we use everything that runs on electricity, computer chips, electronic components, transistors. Uh, these are things that didn't exist uh, certainly not in uh, in any manner like they do today. There may have been some rudimentary electronic things going on back in the 1850s, but uh, really nothing serious at all. And, and that's what gets affected by the sun is uh, electronics. And so, so there's really no way to judge uh, how big that storm was. But in any case, something significant happened there, and um, it uh, potentially can happen again. Another storm, uh, story here from the New York Times. Will compasses point south? is the title of this uh, particular story and they're talking about a magnetic field reversal of the earth and of course uh, this is related to the sun the solar energy uh, the solar wind uh, is directly related to 
the magnetic field of the Earth, and every so often the Earth's magnetic field uh, flips, and uh, the compass on uh, the 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 point on your compass will actually point south instead of north. And there's a whole lot of other things that go along with that. Uh, if that if and when that happens, um, it uh, can can cause uh, quite a bit of uh, chaotic things to happen here on the planet if that happens. And we'll get into a little bit a little bit more of that with Kent here in a few minutes. Um, another story here, sunspot grows to 20 times the size of Earth. A sunspot grouped aimed squarely at Earth has grown to 20 times the size of our planet and has the potential to unleash a major solar storm. Anyway, we're going to talk to Kent about that, too, and I think he's calling right now. So um, I'm going to put on some music for a few minutes. We'll try to get the phones worked out with Kent. We'll be back with Kent Stedman from Cyberspace Orbit talking about lots of crazy things happening in the solar system right now. And uh, I'll be back with you in, in uh, just a few minutes. Thanks.
KOPN, Mid-Missouri source for in-depth news, music of the world, diverse talk, more than radio. It's community radio, KOPN 89.5 FM. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN, and uh, we're working hard to get the phones working. I'm trying to get my friend Kent Stedman on the air here with me. Kent, uh, are you there? I'm here. Howdy, Mike. Wow, okay, we actually got you. All right. <laughs> nice yeah. music, by the way. I love the blues. Hey, thanks. Uh, yeah, that was um, uh, Little Wing by uh, a cover of that old Hendrix tune by Stevie Ray Vaughan. Um, and uh, yeah, one of my one of my favorites actually. Hey, uh, great to have you here, Kent. Uh, to everybody out there listening, my guest tonight is Kent Stedman. He is the mind brain unit behind cyberspaceorbit.com. Uh, that's www.cyberspaceorbit.com. If you're interested in uh, uh, following along tonight and checking out some of the things that Kent and I are going to be talking about, uh, go to the website and check it out, and you can kind of follow along interactively as we uh, get on with things here. But uh, anyway, Kent is a very interesting guy. He's been uh, a friend of mine for a number of years, and I have a tremendous amount of respect for him. He is a former uh, art professor at, where was it, Kent? I think City College of San Diego. Is that where it was? Uh, it's Fresno City College, the armpit of California. <laughs> <laughs> Fresno, California, and uh, an art professor back there in the 70s and the 80s, and uh, a gifted musician. He's a great artist and a writer, uh, but he, like I said earlier, he is an investigator of things mysterious as well, just like me. And uh, so we're going we're gonna to have a great time tonight talking about um, uh, lots of different things, primarily the sun, what's going on on the sun lately. Kent just uh, told me that uh, we had... Uh, Another couple of big flares today. I read, uh, Kent, I was, before you came on the air, I went over some of the stories that we've been talking about over the last week, all those big flares that we had uh, in the last five days or so, and um, just the unprecedented activity we've seen on the sun in the last four or five years when, when we should re now be, be, you know, be, be reaching solar minimum. So, so anyway, uh, that's uh, who my guest is, and Kent's going to be with us in just a minute. We're going to take another music break here and set the mood. This is something that Kent has requested uh, personally, and it's a, a really cool cover of an old, uh, was it Joni Mitchell, Kent? Joni Mitchell. Yeah, an old Joni Mitchell uh, song called Woodstock, and this is the cover by a band called The Chillage People. So check it out. We'll be back in about eight minutes with Kent Stedman from CyberspaceOrbit.com. Kent, hang on there for me, okay? Right, sir. Despite massive traffic jams, drenching
Still with me there, Ken? I'm still here. Cool. The Chillage people on KOPN. That's a great cover of that uh, Jody, uh, Joni Mitchell song, Woodstock. So, okay, let's get right into it here, Kent. Uh, this is uh, my the inaugural edition of Radio Orbit, so uh, I want to tell everybody that um, this is the first time we've been on the air, and we're doing our best to uh, do it without screwing up, but um, I am still kind of learning the ropes here with the phone system and all that, so I appreciate Kent being patient with me and... Uh, 
and also all you guys out there that are listening to us. So, all right, let's get right to it here. Uh, hey, Kent, why don't you tell us, uh, give my listeners a little bit of a background, where you came from. We talked a little bit about Fresno and uh, the 70s and stuff. And uh, give us a little bit, of, little bit of your background, and then we'll move up into orbit and how that, that whole thing got going. Okay, well, h- hello, everybody out there. Let's do this first, uh, just to sort of link up, uh, because I'm quite aware that there's more than just Mike and myself here. There's you folks out there. So if you, I'm a creative type, we'll go into that. So if you'll imagine that we're all sitting around a campfire on a high peak somewhere in the mountains and then <laughs> telling some tales, that's a, how I'm going to regard this next com- this conversation as we go. And by the way... We're going to be talking about the sun right off the bat because the sun just kicked up a huge M8 flare, <clears throat> uh, which means it uh, it erped at us. It spit <laughs> a big CME right in our direction, and a couple of days ago it did that too, which means at this moment, if you'll all just crane your necks to the north, and what you might really do if you're on a high enough hill and look north, you might see the uh, sort of uh, race-like uh, veils of the aurora borealis. We're seeing it here. I'm not because I'm stuck in Seattle in city life, but my son is who's camping up in the mountains, and it's a really quite spectacular, uh, very special event. <laughs> wow. Now, is he... St- is he, see, is he seeing aurora up there, Ken? Yeah, we're seeing it up here, and uh, if you're high enough out, uh, away from the city lights, they're seeing it here and then oh. across the north in Montana. But it's a middle-latitude uh, uh, alert and warning, so <clears throat> who knows? Uh, even there in Missouri, if you're up high enough under clear skies and you look north, you might see uh, uh, some glimmer going along uh, the horizon, northeast, uh-huh. northward. All right, well, now's the time, people. It's 2, it's 3 o'clock in the morning here in mid-Missouri, so if you're up uh, and you want to take a look outside, this is about as dark as it gets. So, <laughs> All right, so what else? Uh, okay, Kent, go on. Well, anyway, um, I love the music, and it, you know, it could be that we really are stardust, according to Sagan and others. We share that uh, solar galactic interchange of of material that really makes up who we are and maybe even at the soul level i don't know that's speculative but anyway uh, my background is i came from utah down into california in about 1966 to teach college okay and uh, it was like going to mars (laughs) (laughs) and uh well there i settled for a long time i was around during the Joni mitchell days the 60s and I saw that amazing <laughs> witness firsthand, deep ingrained <laughs> in the cultural movement of the 60s, and it was really amazing. It was like a, uh, an, a window into another kind of universe. Well, I taught art for many years, and uh, uh, was quite quite interested in getting other people to try to be creative, Mm-hmm. And I'd teach classes with people from all walks of life right. and uh, all ages. And uh, I began experimenting with uh, art and sculpture projects as well as visualizations to help people begin to do what they did when they were kids, you know, and that's huh. look, look inside of their minds and uh, uh, perceive things through more than one aspect. 
Because we're intellectual and we're also emotional and in, intuitive, and I was interested in the, uh, regaining all those type of perspectives, and that's what I'm doing on cyberspaceorbit.com. <laughs> I'm trying to look at things multidimensionally. And uh, uh, by the way, join us there too. Cyberspace, all one word. Cyberspace orbit, all one word. Dot com. And because I'm a visual type of person, and I try to make these uh, theories we're going to be talking about visual. Yeah, and uh, if I could jump in real fast, uh, if if you do go to the website, uh, you'll be amazed. There's some great imagery there. Give it a chance to uh, to load up. Um, and uh yeah some 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 really cool stuff there and and uh i i couldn't agree more kent that this whole idea of getting back to childhood and that uh whatever we had uh, at that time a lot of a lot of older people seem to have lost it and being able to get that back does seem to be one of the solutions maybe to uh, some of the problems we're experiencing right now across the whole planet so well you know we go through different cultural periods too and uh in the 50s, they wanted us all. It was the Sputnik era. I remember. Sure, <laughs> sure. Call those days. They yeah, Yuri, Yuri, Yuri Gagarin and all those guys, sure. Well, that was... That was a little bit after a Sputnik, I guess, but... It was the Cold War and the space race, and they tried to talk a whole lot of us, high school students and college students, uh, into uh, becoming engineers, uh. and chemists, and so on. And I was on my way doing that, too. So I have a little bit of background, but... Uh, the Eisenhower Commission was encouraging us seriously to do that, but I don't know. I went into college, and uh, it seemed too slow. It wasn't fast enough. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> impatient, a lot of I'm an impatient redhead. Right. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, and, that, and that's the argument, and that's the argument of so many children. Interestingly enough, you know, when they go to school, it's like then the kids aren't stupid. It's just they're bored stiff. It's too slow, and I think it goes on and on and on throughout most of our educational institutions. So. So, yeah, so I switched to art, and next thing I knew, I was in a painting studio, and I was, <laughs> and I was and <laughs> gaping at this blank canvas and with no particular rules, anything goes, but the the, the main thing is explore, <laughs> explore. All right, I love it, I love it. So, you know, that sort of training, I'm I'm trained that way. My, my training is uh, specifically... To uh, kind of go out into the uh, out of the box into the edges of things <laughs> like an old hound dog, think of it that way. But, and, and I grab a bone and I fetch it back and then I dump it in, in cyberspace. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, and uh, that's uh, that, that's something that's obvious when we when you go when you go to orbit, uh, people you'll you'll understand very soon that this is not a very that this is not a narrowly focused uh, endeavor. Um, there is. Uh, tangents that go throughout throughout our experience, and there are there there are things uh, that are very artistic in nature. There we touch on uh, Kent actually touches on some political stuff because in the world that we have today, you got to look at that stuff too. Of course, we look at the cosmic stuff, uh, what's going on off our planet as well as on it. And uh, yeah, there's just um, uh, that that big picture thing. Being able to look at things with a, with a broader view is another thing that's real important. So. Well, some of the things we've been looking at in orbit uh, <clears throat> uh, uh, over the years, it's been 10 years now at least. Amazing. 10 years. And uh, a lot of astronomical stuff, which has always fascinated me. And uh, looking at the planets, uh, there's a lot going on with Mars now and Saturn. Right, and right. Jupiter. And the most amazing uh, 
stellar search that I've done is looking through. See, on the Internet, we have some groovy things we can do now, and one of the things you can look through uh, spacecraft that are in orbit around the Earth a million miles out, like the SOHO spacecraft, mm -hmm. is trained right on the sun. And, boy, I'll tell you something. Of all the sleuths and investigations I've done that have uh, jolted me away from my... Uh, college astronomy classes it's been watching the sun and the, and the things shenanigans going on <laughs> on and around the sun i've seen things that i just you know just well let's use the 60s term it blew my mind <laughs> yep and I'm, I'm i know some of those things you're talking about there's nothing like watching soho and you and you might uh, explain a little bit to the to the listeners what soho is but yeah man god over the last years can't we have seen so many things uh, through the eyes of Soho that are just, uh, like you say, I mean, I, as, as far as I'm concerned, at least so far, we just don't have an answer for some of them. So. Well, the Soho spacecraft, and we're right in the middle of this sunstorm right now, so this is perfect. The Soho spacecraft is an eye in the sky with a set of various cameras trained on the sun. Some of the cameras look at the corona. They have a, like a mask that blocks out the face of the sun so you can watch the corona. Okay. And uh, through the X-ray spectrum, and I'd like to look at the Earth through the X-ray spectrum. Yeah, no kidding, no kidding. <laughs> and uh, one of one of the cameras, uh, you get down and look. It's called the uh, the Soho cameras. Actually, look right down on the face of the sun. And the Lasco cameras, which are all on the same spacecraft, look look uh, at the corona and then there's another spacecraft called trace which gets you right down close looking at the uh, amazing uh, plasma shindigs <laughs> that are going on down up close and it's it's just a, i don't know what it is about the sun but boy it's the center of our solar system and maybe uh mythologically uh, correspondent to what we call soul you know? right i would agree with that for sure yeah, you know, um, uh, before I brought you on the air, I, I wanted to prep the, the people a little bit, and I, and I was digging around for some stories, and I found uh, a number of different stories. One, uh, one titled, uh, Solar Storm Could Spark Catastrophe. Another one, of course, uh, talking about the magnetic field of the Earth, which, appear, which apparently seems to be weakening at a greater rate uh, than it has been um, over the time that they've been measuring it. And that, uh, of course, is something that's a, a whole other can of worms. They talk about this stuff as if they know it, but they've only been measuring for 150 years. And 150 years ago, the means of measurement weren't very good. So I think they kind of got a blind eye towards some of this stuff. But uh, anyway, they're talking about magnetic reversals, and that, I think, um, can be related to, to solar activity. There's another story here about a sunspot grows to 20 times the size of Earth. Now, I think that's 652, that sunspot area 652. Is that the one that you said just blew a little bit earlier? Well, it's been blowing steady like a rail gun for the last, <laughs> uh, for the last week. And, uh, yeah, it just blew an M8. Wow. Now, when was it? A year ago? Last, uh, last October. October, November? Sure. For the, we saw the biggest flare probably ever in history, <laughs> and that includes observation history and, and any kind of rumor of in, in prehistory times right. that it blew up the X-48. Now, X-class is the, is the biggest category of a flare, and, uh, and then it goes up beyond and beyond and beyond. Well, this is an X-48. It goes <laughs> up into Y-flare and Z-flare, 
and it was incredible. When it blew, it was off more towards the uh, eastern, uh, uh, let's see, I get my, the western rim of the sun, and so it missed us. Right. <laughs> or only just sort of careened, a uh, glancing blow. Yeah. Hey, Ken, why don't, you, why don't you explain to people real fast about that, there, uh, about these flares. First, first of all, maybe we could talk a little bit about the levels. It goes, like, I think it goes C class, then M class, then X and uh, and also maybe talk a little bit about coronal mass ejections that are related to these flares and maybe uh, you know it's a three-dimensional space and sometimes people have a difficult time thinking about that and maybe you could describe again how those sunspot areas are sometimes what they call geo-effective and uh, uh, what that means to us down here so well you can see them on the face of the sun and sometimes with the naked eye be careful but if the sun comes up in the morning and there's it's kind of misty and uh, you're looking through, the, the, you know, <clears throat> a volume of atmosphere, or if you have welding glasses or really thick sunglasses, you can see this. Uh, huh. This flare is a series of dark spots now more toward the right or the west right. of the uh, of the face of the sun, but you can see it, and they become geo-effective when when they are somewhere, you know, in in center position. For instance, the this. Sunspot 652 complex is still geoeffective and probably will be for the next couple of days. But these mm -hmm. these regions are like electrical vortexes, and sometimes they throw off a what you call a flare. Sometimes these flares are like big sparks, and sometimes they they also correspond to a coronal mass ejection which is solar material coming right at us you know and there's different kinds of solar material some is very uh, lightweight protons electrons and uh, but sometimes it spits plasma right at us and this is like uh, you know many many hydrogen bombs right force coming right, right. right at us and it fans out in a big funnel and if it strikes the earth and if the solar winds are blowing in the right direction if it strikes the earth then then it hits the earth and the mag and the earth like a big nerf nerf ball will will the the magnetic field around the earth will collapse hmm. and uh uh <clears throat> generally what happens is it makes for a really beautiful aurora sure. in the north but yeah. you know potentially <laughs> potentially it it could be quite devastating hmm. depending on the force of the coronal mass mass ejection mm. and uh, I've seen it in 98 around Christmas time I saw atmosphere leak off the <laughs> the earth forever because of a CME that hit the earth and there happened to be a spacecraft train up in the northern polar region and it, and it, and it took a picture of atmosphere going bye-bye wow. forever so you know it can be potentially a very powerful thing and right. I, what's interesting to me is maybe the effects it might have on the human nervous system hmm, yeah we have we have we certainly well a couple things that that you made me think of uh with regard to mars there are some uh, some recent theories that talk about that that may have been how mars actually lost its atmosphere you know uh, people have talked to, uh, about a long time ago, millions of years ago, or whatever the time frame might be, that the, that that Mars actually had an atmosphere that may have not been all that different from Earth. Uh, there was most likely water, and uh, um, and of course you and me know that there's still water on Mars. But uh, <coughs> pardon me. Anyway, um, uh, there's some people that say that a solar, a big solar shot, may have actually torn the atmosphere right off of Mars. Could be. It could be. Um... 
Mars definitely was once a blue planet. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. geologically, you can see that the ocean bed, that there are opportunities. Uh, rover up there right now. That's what it's doing. It's rolling around in an, in an ocean bed, right. an old ocean bed. And uh, so it wants that seas. And uh, there are various places on the internet where you can, where they show Mars reconstructed and the way it may have looked eons ago when it was a blue planet. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, and you know what interests me, Mike, is, is well, you know, I'm part scientist and part mythologist art this crazy artist and, uh, <laughs> and uh, but you know the legends of uh, Babylonia were where the confusion of languages and so on I, I you know just see to the pants now I'll pop it out I wonder if that was a solar strike you mm. know to hit certain mm. regions of the earth in such a manner mm. that it, you know the human nervous systems were short circuit circuited and maybe the, the brain was formatted well you know um I'm not sure how familiar you are with uh, the the, the uh, work of Emanuel Velikovsky, but Velikovsky uh, actually wrote a book back in the 60s. It was called People in Amnesia, and he actually has a, had a similar theory that he, that and he, and he he related it to the um, to language. He he believes that uh, or believed he's no longer with us, but uh, Velikovsky believed that that at one time, at least one time in the history of the planet, which of course goes back you know millions and billions of years so there are obviously things that could have happened here that we will never know about but in any case Velikovsky believed that there was a that there was a global language that people actually shared a language throughout the entire planet and that something happened and he didn't he, he doesn't necessarily uh, identify it as a solar shot or uh, uh, an asteroid impact or, or a shift in the magnetic field or whatever but he believes that something happened uh, that neurologically just like you say uh, changed the the physiology of the human brain and that is the uh, the the source of the story of the Tower of Babel and this confusion of the languages so uh, so that's certainly something that's uh, that's that's worth thinking about I think well you know that's where we we connect with uh, everything out there is that uh, uh, see one of our human aspects is that we're uh, kind of like a big walking bundle of hamburger <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> another aspect is that we're electromagnetic absolutely which means you know we we literally radiate uh energy mm -hmm. and they call them brain waves well they come off it comes off all portions of our body so mm -hmm. you know and that and you can't you can't say well i'm doing a brain wave and it stops there five <laughs> feet out you know waves keep going and exactly. they intermingle with with uh the the waveforms of the entire universe. Right. So we really are connected. All these things are sort of uh, interconnected with their with their electrical magnetic field, sort of interacting with one another, regardless of whether it's a human field or this computer screen that I'm looking at or whatever. So. And you know, uh, Einsteinian theory. This fascinates me too. Einstein said that at the speed of light, all this wild stuff happens. You know, time dilation, uh, infinite mass so on right. and uh, like like when you look at light almost it's like looking at the uh, the uh, in uh, the midland between the physical world and something else well you know what we're all traveling at the speed of light yeah. welcome to the speed of light right yeah, we're the, there yeah. so uh, <laughs> at certain uh, dimensions of our being, you know, we're we're already doing all those stunts that Einstein says happens at the speed of light. Right, right, right. 
Yeah, that's true. I mean, the whole quantum uh, the quantum physics thing really kind of threw a monkey wrench into all that. You know, when they finally said, "Well, look, uh, you know, at the at the at the subatomic level, things don't always act like particles. They sometimes act like waves, and they sometimes act like particles." Well, right then, that basically tells you that at the at the core of your being, you are nothing but light waves. <laughs> Well, they, even particle physics, you know, is kind of facing an impasse right now because they're having one heck of a hard time finding the basic underlying what they call the God particle, sure. the Higgs particle. Yeah, they haven't found them. it. Right. <laughs> they haven't found it. And recently out of the big accelerators in Europe at CERN and DESI, they put out a statement that it may not exist. Huh. So deep down... As you explore matter through the molecular, the atomic, the subatomic, down, 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 deeper within, you know, there may not be a, a particle there. It may be something else. Right. It's almost this whole creator-created dy dynamic that I that, that I think about sometimes where, you know, the, 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 the seeker will find, you know what I mean? The more we look, the more that will be revealed. We sort of, we sort of create it as we... Uh, as we investigate it, and I, I honestly think that that is the big impasse of science, that it can never reconcile the fact that it just cannot get that final answer, and uh, that that becomes the, synth the, the, the synthesis between the scientific and the mystical, and, uh, and that's a place where most of these guys are not willing to go, you know. Well, you know, it it also frees you up, and even though there there it is frustrating that you you know you explore an idea, and you think you've got an answer. Well, it gives way to another question, on right, and right. on and on. But but awe is cool for an artist, anyway. Mm -hmm. I like it. That I I enjoy it, and that's what actually keeps me going is the fact that the one solution will give way to another question. And uh, on and on it goes. And what this says to us as human beings is it's okay to free the imagination. And that's what I've kind of been, hmm. that's been my soapbox for many, many years, is right. uh, getting back in touch with your imagination, cut it loose, go out there and uh, dream. Because, you know, the, the universe, they say, is infinite. <laughs> so you're free to dream. You're free to dream, and uh, the probability that what you might dream or imagine, imagine, image, mage, right, magi, right, what right. you might imagine, it has a, a probability of, of being there, you know, right. and you're talking about infinity, so, the, so cut loose and imagine and, and go for it. We live in a rational age, which is fine, and it's a sort of a filter that we use, but... Uh, it's not the only filter. Huh. Not the only filter because we're we're the most human aspect. I think is is our is our potential to dream. And there are cultures like the Sonoy and Malaysia where they where they make a big deal out of that. People wake up from from their dream state at night and then they sit around. The campfire, by the way, we're all sitting around. Here. <laughs> That's right. Don't forget. And they they they, they, they describe their dreams, and they, they consider that you know significant. Wow.
Well, okay, I think that's a good uh, I think that's a good opportunity to take a break. Good time to break up for a second here. We're going to put on a little bit of music. Kent, I'll be back with you in about five minutes. Uh, I'm I'm going to go uh, take a break from the campfire here and go get a little bit of something to drink. And uh, we'll be back with Kent Stedman from CyberspaceOrbit.com, and uh, we'll be talking with Kent for another at least another hour uh, if I can talk him into it. And uh, uh, we'll be we'll be back right after that. Hey, Kent, thanks a lot, and we'll be back in just a minute. Okay. The end of you. All right.
All right, we're back. Howdy. Hey, Kent. All right. Hey, everybody. Radio Orbit on KOPN 89.5 FM. Mid-Missouri source for in-depth news, diverse talk, and music of the world. Also, Radio Orbit. And tonight we're with Kent Stedman, and he's on the line here and being courteous enough to talk to us in the middle of the night. Kent, let's get back into what we were talking about before. We are talking about the sun and, uh, well, just lots of different stuff. So I'm just going to kind of let you get right back into whatever we were talking about before. Well, let's reinforce the magic again. And howdy, everybody out there. <laughs> uh, you know, we're aware of you. <laughs> and it's nice to be with you. And uh, here we are all. We are all are. Uh, conservatives, liberals, boozers, finders, and we're sitting around a campfire here poking the flames and talking and telling some tales. And that's what it's all about right now. So, uh, you know, join join in with us in this in these imaginings, and we'll get down to some pretty uh, interesting and, I hope, stimulating conversation here. Now, where were we? <laughs> all right, let's see. Um... Well, you know what you you uh, you mentioned that we were talking about the sun and we were talking about imagination and we were talking about these words and I, you made me think about how you mentioned the word soul and how um, we call the sun uh, soul. Of course, that's the Spanish word for it. And then we have the soul inside ourselves. And soul also is a fish, and it also means the word. It, it also means one, as in the soul, the only one. So anyway, all these words have these deeper, deeper meanings, and I think uh, imagination is one of those ones that, that you hit on that's the same way. You mentioned the word magic involved in there, and magi, and mage, and uh, these are things that uh, are so important for the, for the, for the human spirit, and, and um, let's just uh, talk some more about that. Well, uh, imagination, magi, mage, uh, magic, they, they all come from M-A-G, which is a root as far as I can translate it to my best ability, means M-A-G equals to C. C. So what you're doing with the imagination is you allow yourself to see. And, you know, that's where the root seer, seer came from. And so, uh, uh, well, you know, the best thing is to do is use all of your... uh, perceptions right brain left brain you know go out with your imagination and see and then and then filter it with your uh, with your, your binary aspect of yourself more earthbound use logic and and uh, and, and try to see how it see how it applies to uh, our position here on earth which appears to be more more up and down, you and me, this and that, black and white, right. you know. That's the whole duality thing. And so, you know, creative people are culturally assigned, are culturally assigned to see, you know, to go out and see, and scientific people are culturally assigned to uh, analyze. And so, mm-hmm. and, and we all have these uh, aspects within ourselves, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, some some of us are one way, some of us are another way. And uh, it, it, you know it's interesting to see how to see how this percolate, percolates down into politics and mm. how people are dancing like on a hot kettle now. Mm. <laughs> and mm. in the in the mob, incredible change. There's a lot of things going on, mm-hmm. and uh, and you can see it in our politics. So when 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 I uh, you know I try to look at all things in my investigations, including the cosmos, the ancient cultures what may have come before us, what's happening now, and how it's influencing everybody and how it's making us all do our earth dance. (laughs) 
the earth dance, a great way to put it. Yeah, you know, Kent, um, you mentioned a minute ago you were talking about uh, using the brain the right brain, the left brain, the whole system uh, in order to, to perceive the world around us. And that's something that I've been really interested in lately is this, uh, you know, it's, uh, you may or may not be familiar with this work, but anyway, the, the heart um, is something that's recently been determined that up to 65% of the cells in your heart, actual heart cells, are neurons. And uh, it's actually a confirmation of sort of the old what the sages have all told us and that is to think with your heart well it turns out that this isn't just a metaphor really the heart actually does have a tremendous number of neurons and these neurons are no different than the ones that are in your brain and so making that connection between the two the heart mind and the brain mind again that balance in between is where uh, is where the answers lie I think and I think again we see that in our politics and in our culture and in in, uh, uh, in our everyday life, we see in many cases uh, a disconnect between that heart mind and the brain mind. And I think to reconnect there is something that we have to do as a species in order to survive. But it's also something that ties exactly ties right in with that relearning of imagination. Well, everybody out there, you know, put the question to you. Don't you feel things with your heart, you know? Right. Human beings feel things with our, with our heart, and uh, it's powerful stuff. I mean, your brain can be twittering along, you know, doing brain stuff. <laughs> when when the heart kicks in, you know, that all kind of goes by the wayside. Sure. <laughs> that all goes, it becomes sort of a lot of gibberish out there in the, in the, in the uh, analytical Things and we're really propelled most profoundly by what we feel deep down inside. And can, you know, if you can feel it, sense it in your heart, and uh, paying attention to that, well, you can't help but pay attention to it because <laughs> that's a powerful mojo, right, uh, right. feeling and emotion. And uh, there are just so many different. Uh, aspects to us, uh, the Native American people that Mike and I have had the privilege of being able to meet and discuss things with, you know, they, they regard their perceptual world in, in more than one dimension. It's like mm -hmm. six dimensions. <laughs> right. You know, you have the mind, you have the emotions, you have the heart, you have the intellect, right. and uh, you have the physical strength, you know, the physical and they have totems as something the, that was hard to understand when there was cross-culture a couple, three hundred years ago. But they, they'll symbolize these different aspects of the human being with the totemic sort of things, like the bear is physical and the ego is far-seeing and <laughs> the, the sun is the soul and the orca floating out with its family out there, very powerful, emotional being. Right, I've met some right. orcas. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, the, any, anybody who doesn't think that the dolphins and the orcas are not perfectly sentient creatures, well, they just aren't looking. These are incredible creatures, and uh, I believe what you say, you can have a relationship with them. So, And then things change over, over time, you know, different uh, uh, influences and... and uh, the way we insist upon one another that we that, that we model and look at the world, these things change, and right. sometimes for the for the better that is 
it uh, utilizes more human potential, and sometimes for the worse, where everything sort of shrinks down to, uh, like a raisin, and, and uh, you're supposed to uh, look at the world in very limited and prescribed ways. Well, you know, those humans have been on this earth for a long, long time. Right. And maybe more, much maybe more. longer than anybody even can understand. And maybe more than once. Oh yeah, you know maybe maybe not continuously, but maybe who knows? I mean, the thing is, like you say, I mean, who the heck knows? It's you know billions of years, and uh, we we look back a few a few thousand. We talk about history, and we go back, you know, we we go back what seven thousand years, maybe maximum five thousand BC before we get really confused. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I just I'm in the midst of a uh, investigation. It's got my hair standing on. <laughs> You know, it really sends chills up and down my body because, uh, well, you know, Mike knows that for years uh, I played music and for a long time I played Celtic music. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, so uh, as a result, I I was able to hang out with some Irish guys and and, uh, and I became really interested in Ireland. And uh, I, I liked, I loved the Irish people. Mm -hmm. Well, anyway, recently there's a place in Ireland, inland from Dublin, called the Boyne Valley, and it's a pretty sizable valley. I'm, I'll have to go there and pace around it to actually get a sense of size. But it's you know it's five miles by ten miles, so so that's what five hundred square miles, I think. <laughs> right, it's a big area for sure. And a big area. Well, I started looking at. I found a map just by chance of the Boyne Valley, and in this Boyne Valley are some monuments there that are these immense uh, cairns or mounds. I mean, they're huge. <laughs> they're huge. Let's go back and, and talk a little bit about where this is at exactly. This is in, the Boyne Valley is in Ireland, is that that's right? It's in Ireland, okay. and if you go to Dublin, you get in a car and you drive for about uh, an hour or so, and you, you end up heading, heading west, and you end up in this valley which is <clears throat> the main feature in the valley is the Boyne River okay. and this Serpentine River that runs through the valley and, and scattered around in a really interesting arrangement, which I'll go into in a minute, are these huge mounds. Now, we have mounds in the United States. Sure. In fact, there are mounds right there in Missouri. Yes, you know? St. Louis, Mound City, right? I think they used to call it so. Well, mounds are really puzzling because they're huge to start with, and the mounds in the Boyne Valley, known as uh, Newgrange, Nauf, and Douth, and the Hill of Terra, and then smaller mounds, and the Hanges, and, and Stolmans, you know, stones that uh, are arranged in really interesting patterns and situations like Stonehenge. So, okay, I was going to ask, yeah, is it something similar at least, in con conceptually at least? Well, anyway, you, if you fly like an eagle up away from the Boyne Valley and you look down or you look at a map, which I did of the Boyne Valley, right. you begin to notice that these mounds are interrelated. Even though they're miles apart, they're interrelated in a very interesting way. Well, my intuition served me quite well because it, it looked to me like a star map. Mound huh. here, mound over there, mound over there. They look like positions of stars. And so right. I r ran across uh, the, some mythology in Ireland that equates some of these ancient people, which, by the way, these mounds predate Giza by a thousand years. They go way back. Wow. And uh, uh, 
So it may be, you know, kind of like Eden, mythologically, <laughs> the earliest. Wow. Okay. Well, listen, that's a good place to take a break. We're just about at the top of the hour. Kent, when we come back, let's... Um, uh, I'm going to pull up the website at the break here, and uh, I think you've got some imagery there. I think you've got some overlays of uh, uh, the Boyne Valley uh, with uh, some star systems, and it looks like a whole bunch of stuff. So maybe we can get a little bit deeper into this uh, when we come back at the top of the hour. It's a wild tale, speaking of All right. I can't wait to hear more of it. And uh, we got another hour with uh, uh, with Kent Stedman, if we can keep him up that long. And... Um, and uh, we'll talk about uh, this uh, archaeological, mythological mystery that Kent is working on in Ireland. And uh, we'll uh, talk a little bit more about the creative and imagination and all that stuff, too, hopefully before the end of the night. And, um, and we'll, be back, uh, we'll be back just, um, oh, just in a minute here if I can get my CD player figured out. So anyway, back with Kent Stedman in a minute. Kent, thanks for everything.
Tragically Hip on KOPN. That was Terrarium from Day for Night. And it's 4 o'clock in the morning on KOPN 89.5 FM, Columbia, Missouri, and surrounding areas. This is Radio Orbit, the inaugural edition, with a great uh, show and a, a super guest on the line, my friend Kent Stedman. Kent, you still there? I'm still here. All right, cool. I'm dreaming so, away about Ireland, as a matter of fact. All right, well, it, uh, we ended the last hour just a few minutes ago, and Kent was uh, telling us about um, an area in Ireland called the Boyne Valley where uh, he's uh, uh, they located some, some interesting monuments and some mounds. And, uh, um, boy, I went, to, I went to the website, Kent, uh, while we were on the break there, and I'm looking at uh, some of the, uh, the layovers between these mounds and the star maps and everything, and it is pretty incredible so uh why don't you um why don't, you, why don't you lay it out for us here and let everyone know what we're what we're looking at well to do so come with us uh, everybody out there because what we're going to do now is kind of take a little trip in time yeah let's give out the website again real fast www.cyberspaceorbit.com that's c-y-b-e-r-s-p-a-c-e-o-r-b-i-t.com no spaces except for the word space in the middle there, but cyberspaceorbit.com, and uh, uh, check it out. It's pretty cool stuff. Well, the people that built these mounds in the Bourne Valley, east of or west of Dublin, uh, apparently did so uh, with uh, position of the mounds in mind. In other words, they must have had some long pieces of string to figure this all out. <laughs> Right. <laughs> or uh, very sophisticated surveying equipment because what they did is a they laid out all these mounds in relationship to one another to first of all the Pleiades star constellation and I mean I found a map of the Pleiades and I as an artist I, I pasted it transparently right over the Boyne Valley and the stars in the constellation and the mound structures the major ones line up perfectly <laughs> line up perfectly right that's what i'm looking at right now and i can't believe the the, the, the image i'm looking at so and i couldn't believe it because uh think of that think of the implications of that yeah 
And uh, we're talking that uh, 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 some people, whoever they were, we'll go into that for a minute because then you have to go into mythology. Mm-hmm. But uh, some people that uh, uh, were around a long time ago, a thousand years before the pyramids <laughs> in Egypt, and they were building these immense mounds. I mean, right. immense mounds. Right. Uh, under the Mount of Terror, I'll quickly say they recently, by using... Uh, High technology. They found a, a, a temple underneath Terra, oh and uh, so that that got me interested right away. But the thing that really made my hackles rise was positioning the map of the Pleiades over the, the mound system in the Bourne Valley, and bingo, <laughs> they lined up. And then, well, then B, uh, they have a kind of interesting curve, like a spiral arrangement to them. And so I then took the uh, the spiral that's found in what you call the Fibonacci series, and without getting too technical, it's a type of geometry that's been known about since ancient times called the golden mean. Oh, okay. And if you draw a bunch of lines and this and that working out the geometry, you'll notice a spiral. Mm-hmm. It's the same spiral that, that that's found in the Nautilus shell, and it's the same spiral that's found the way the sunflower seeds swirl toward the center. Hmm. And it's the same way water looks when it's going down the drain, and it's the same way our Milky Way spiral galaxy uh, geometrically and mathematically arranges itself. Mm. So then, to make a long story short, I cut and pasted a transparency over the top of the Boyne Valley, and I already had the Pleiades constellation, and here was this beautiful spiral going right through the mound system through all, perfectly, (laughs) through all the... uh, uh, Bounds and, and spiraling up to the right and top and uh, spiraling to center over an, over an area that really interested me because where the center of the spiral positioned itself, there was no real mound up there, but there was a lake. <laughs> a lake. Now, if you if you got any Celtic uh, Blarney, if you kissed the Blarney Stone like myself playing right. Irish music for 20 years, you, you realize that... Uh, and if you hang out with the Native American people, you realize that bodies of water are very, very important mm-hmm. to the ancient people. You know, they they just thought that there were correspondences in their belief system and their understanding of the universe. Well, I I got a hold of a couple of Irish guys in, that lived near the in the Boyne Valley, and uh, references to their websites are apparent up there. Dowcom. Uh, being uh, uh, the specific reference, I got a hold of this guy named Michael over there, and I said, "Well, what is that lake?" Well, he didn't know. He lived four, for, you know, and just four miles away from it, right. but he'd never explored the lake itself. So he says, "Well, hang on." He says, "I'll go look." Right. <laughs> and well, he found. He goes. He has to walk south of a highway through several fields, and he stumbles upon this expanse of about five acres, which is a marsh lake. Right. And the center of the lake, where there was a whole family of swans right there, which, uh, Holy cow. which is important to mythology. Is, now, is that the photo that I'm looking at on the yeah, website? Yeah, you'll see the photo. I'll be darned. Yeah, I see, I see the but, swan right there. But that lake, oh, man. Holy cow. You know, what does it bring up in terms of your Celtic mythology, the lake? Lady of the Lake and the... 
the lady of the lake, the sword of destiny. The right, God. right. That the, the the divine feminine sort of thing too comes to mind. You know. And it, it's in eye shot about a mile away from the Douth Mound, which is the oldest one. You know, Kent. If I can jump in real fast too, as I'm looking at this, I see the. Um, where the lake is located, the uh, it looks like the area there is called Maya. Is that correct? Well, it's underneath the the, the pole star Maya, ah. which is in the constellation Pleiades. The name wow. of the lake was right, just right, found out. Right. Nobody knew. It's called Bally Boy Lake. Bally Boy. Right. Wow. Wow. Well, that's crazy because uh, <laughs> the whole the whole the, you know I'm I'm seeing all these different words on this map, and they and all of these words. You know, are interesting words in and of themselves. The word Maya, of course, a very interesting word and has lots of different meanings. And of course, hey, right now, and we'll talk, we don't have to talk too much about it, but it is the Mayan New Year uh, tomorrow. And today is what the Mayans called, uh, and what anybody who practices the uh, 13 month, uh, 28 day calendar today is what's called the day out of time. <laughs> so, uh, so happy day out of time there, Barchko. Well, uh, Mike and I like to talk at length about these sort of. Uh, alchemy of words and how oh, they, they you know they weren't just cooked up by accident they, right certain words and on your map here the other word is called knoweth or nouth k-n-o-w-t-h and obviously that looks like the word know and it looks like uh the word knoweth and uh so these are things that are not by accident they're not coincidental and uh, i think they're significant so man really cool keep going Ken. and the valley boy that's the root bail bail Bale. Yeah. The eye of the sun, really. Right, right. <laughs> wow. And now, see, the ancients, uh, a place like that was uh, really, really important because it's a, it's a marsh lake. And it's quite small, just a couple hundred yards across in the summertime, but during the rainy season, it'll expand out over five acres in the, of uh, reeds. Well, reeds are very important to Irish mythology. Mm -hmm. To start with, they made stuff out of <laughs> the reeds. Right. And, uh, the, of course, it would be uh, a nexus for all kinds of wildlife, including herbs and uh, medicine, which they'd use for medicines. And, uh, and also, uh, uh, they felt that uh, some of these lakes had curative powers. In fact, not very far away north along the Maddock is a place called Slane's Hill. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, Slain was one of the ancient races, Irish races, a Fearbold, they call them Fearbold, and we'll talk about these different people in a moment, but okay. that was his hill. That's where St. Patty, St. Patty went up to, to hold the snakes at bay. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, so it's famous for St. Patrick, it's fam famous for this ancient Fearbold king named Slain. Right. And in the mythology, they talk about Slain's well. Uh, and I'm beginning to wonder if the lake, even though they've assigned ah, that to another place. That it might be Swain's Well. It might be Swain's Well. Well, the mythology around that, the word slain, mm -hmm. it comes from, you know, they took the slain warriors, the slain warriors, right. down to Swain's Well, and they'd, toss them, they'd throw them, put them in the water ah, and, and resurrect them. <laughs> right, so this was a rejuvenating, reincarnating water or something like that. So is this Slane's well? Well, we don't know, but uh, <laughs> you know, there are a lot of other things. A marsh lake, for instance, has these uh, disgusting little critters in them called leeches. Well, they're not so disgusting because the leeches have a certain, uh, in their 
saliva, they have a, a certain actual healing properties. Mm. For then the, the ancients knew about this. Uh, so all the stories of wounds, uh, they, they, you know, they use leeches on wounds, right, they use right. leeches on arthritis. <laughs> right. So those, so those old medical stories weren't weren't based on lunacy. They actually had some sort of a experiential benefit from the practice that they, that they recognized. Well, yeah, and in Slain's well, there were the four sacred leeches. Oh <laughs> and an ancient Thirbol or Dedanan princes. Wow. A healer would take them down there and. Uh, well, the thing that interests me, too, is that, like the Native Americans, when there's a place like this that's been used for thousands of years, it becomes kind of uh, important, uh, even sacred, you know. And sacred places like this, uh, like the Mayan centers, uh, they'll toss stuff in there and they'll, you know, they'll uh, give offerings and so on. And uh, right, right. so the next uh, question is, what's down <laughs> in that lake? Oh, man. <laughs> Now, the people, according to Irish stories and mythology, there were migrations of various... Well, see, when the Celts came up from their copper mines in northern Spain, they, they were, there were people already living up there, and they, they were... That's where your uh, hobbit stories and Middle-earth stories... Right, right. Because these people were uh, magical, which means highly advanced. <laughs> you know. let, let, let's talk a little bit about the history of the people a little bit, and maybe you could relate it to uh, to, to Tolkien a little bit, or some uh, somehow relate it to, so the listeners can kind of can can kind of get a current day grasp on what we're, on, on what we kind of think these people might have been like. Well, uh, the the Irish encountered when they got there, the and where the hell they might have come from, Kent. <laughs> well, they encountered the people right off the bat called the Dedanon, the Tuatha Dedanon. Okay. I played music, uh, uh, Irish Celtic music that's that's uh, in homage to the Tuatha Dé Danann. And uh, you know who who were they? Well, it's hard to it, we don't know. But uh, the tribe of Dan or the uh, the followers of Diana, you know, that all seems to correspond somehow. Uh, the, the Huntress people and. Uh, if you go back far enough enough in the mythology, you find that they were uh, sort of tall, bronze-skinned, uh, uh, sort of like the Greeks, hmm. the Greek civilization, highly advanced civilization right. of the time. <clears throat> and uh, they were considered magical. A lot of stories, uh, uh, they, they, for instance, they could appear and disappear at will, things like that. So you have sort of the high okay. elven culture similar to uh, the Tolkien myth in the people of the Dedanon. Okay. But now prior to the Dedanon, there was a, there was a, a bunch called the uh, Firbolg, F-I-R-B-O-L-G. And the, they seem to be a sort of a, a difficult <laughs> bunch because the Dedanon <laughs> and the Firbolg, the Firbolg were constantly uh, at war. And the Fearbolg apparently lived, uh, they were more uh, rough-cut species, and they lived uh, underground hmm. in caves and tunnels and so on. Now, who were they? I don't know. Were they uh, Cro-Magnon and Neanderthal types? I don't know. But, uh, or were they something else? Uh, there's, they're, they're connected to the dragon, you know, and the, and the hmm. serpent, serpent. 
in mythology, the fear bowl beings. And then prior to that, <clears throat> there was a, a very early race which uh, were called the Fomorian. Now, these guys, <laughs> <laughs> these guys were aquatic. They were aquatic, and they were really scary, <laughs> like the gnomos of, uh, and who are the Dogon? Sure, the Dogons in the, the African tribe, yeah. Yeah, they were they were considered people of the sea. The, the, right. the Scottish and Irish called them the blue men or the silky, huh. or the silky, or the you know later the legends of the mermaid and the mermen <laughs> came from it. And they came out of the sea and they, they entered the valley through uh, subterranean passageways and caves that connected to the sea. Huh. And. Uh, uh, so you go back and back and back through all these tiers of mythology right, and right. encountering all these people. But what we have there is an amazing architectural wonder in the Boyd, Boyne Valley. In all, the, all of these mounds that are uh, surveyed and laid out precisely under the Pleiades constellation, right. precisely in, in, uh, innate within the geometry of the golden spiral the golden right, mean the golden and section. spirals towards this lake. <laughs> right. Well, I tell you something, Kent, um you know, people tend to look at mythology with uh with an with an idea that mythology is is not uh, is not real, it's not reality, it's just a it's just a uh, a parable or a metaphor uh to um to try to get a point across, to try to teach something or whatever, and 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 I, and I include myth, I, in 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 the use of the word mythology, I include the Bible, you know, I include the Koran, I include these ancient texts of all these old cultures that are the com, the, the collected mythology of that culture. But I think that what we're learning is that as we as we see all of these monuments that 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 seem to be placed throughout the world, all over the planet. Uh, th things that that defy our explanation uh, as to how they were how they were done, how they were completed, uh, how they for example this Boyne Valley thing that we're looking at with you, how the heck did they uh, were they able to to construct the positions of these mounds and these monuments without knowing without without being very highly sophisticated people? So so you start to think that the mythology when when we the mythology may certainly be metaphorical on a certain level. But there's also truth in some of this mythology, I think, is what we're learning. And, and we cannot take it as fantasy and that these peoples and that the stories that they related in their mythology are very possibly real stories. Well, that's how they kept the history and they kept the news. It's through oral tradition, you know, and these guys that did that had to be very specifically trained right. to carry these myths from one generation to another, word for word. Right, without without corrupting the story, right? Yeah, and even today, the the Irish Shanaki still goes from village to village, and and uh, part minstrel, part poet. That's where the bardic tradition came from. Right, and it's what it's what you and I see in the Lakota traditions. So right, and uh, well, anyway, that's not a, uh, an arbitrary task. These people, because it comes up through the Druids and the bardic system, and they and they have to be able to relate these tales mm -hmm. perfectly. You know, which is in a way, a better deal than uh, sort of the written word, you know, which gets tossed around. And, uh, just because something's written in a book doesn't mean, you know, what it is 
And we're talking about Time Magazine and, and Playboy. You know, what it is is modern mythology. Right. And uh, one thing I've noticed huh. in, in a critical analysis of mythology is the myth hangs on. You know, it doesn't go away. Now, compare it to science, where you have one theory eclipsing another theory. Mm-hmm. On and on and on. The, 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 the uh, scientific theory... Uh, even Einstein said he knew it only had a slice of the pie, and, right, right. and uh, Newton and all those. Well, they they change rapidly in a span of 50 years. You've got one scientific theory giving way to another, but some of these myths have stayed around for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. So, uh, in trying to juggle science and myth, you know, uh, what do you say? Well, the myth is more almost more permanent. Uh, whether it stands up to scientific analysis or not, uh, well, that's a debate, but it doesn't go away. It's still right. there. Right. And uh, I've often wondered if if this world we live in isn't so much condensed myth. <laughs> yeah, something I think, that I think that you coined the term, I think you call it the myth stream. Yeah. Yeah, that's a real interesting concept, and I think... Uh, <laughs> I think you're right about that. I, you know, I, my 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 opinion on mythology changed uh, years ago when I I read and was introduced to uh, Joseph Campbell. Boy, I tell you what, uh, there's there's a whole lot there, and it's stuff that that's um, really valuable. And I think it tells us a lot about about the history of our planet, the real history of our planet, and and really the potential of ourselves as human beings. What are what are we really? You know what I mean? What are we really capable of? And uh, and our ancestors, I think, uh, would probably not be real pleased about where we're at right now. I think, I think that, uh, I think some of our ancestors might think that we're capable of quite a bit more. Well, when you have a hill or a pyramid or uh, or a mound, you know, or a, a, a Stonehenge, you, you know, that goes beyond myth because you can walk out and stub your toe on. Right, those that's myth and that's, that's, that's myth concretized in the physical, right? I had an interesting, back when I was uh, just out of college, I went down to uh, Aotihuacan in north of Mexico City. Well, I'm not sure which direction it has been so long, but I climbed up this huge pyramid of the sun in the, in the complex of Teotihuacan and barely made it to the top. Right. And as a young, fit man, I was sitting up there on this immense pyramid looking at another pyramid, nearby the period of the moon in a huge complex there and uh, <clears throat> all of a sudden here comes this move talk about myth <laughs> across myth this movie company comes up and here's this guy dressed in this bat cape <laughs> 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 and they hustle us off to all one side on the apex of the pyramid and they start blowing things up and throwing dummies and stuff over the edge of the pyramid and filming it at the same time. And I'm going, holy moly. <laughs> Talk about uh, cross myth strings. Right. No kidding. Now, what? Uh, that was that was back when I'm sure it wasn't highly regulated and you could probably get around down there and kind of go where you wanted and not have a whole lot of, whole lot of trouble with uh, security or things like that. Like today, you can't even get near the top of the Pyramid of the Sun, you know. Oh, you can't? No, not a chance in hell. <laughs> yeah, well, everybody's walking up to the top of oh, that. Man. You know, that pyramid, apparently, I met a friend down there by accident who's mm-hmm. an archaeology student at, at my college. He was there, too, and he said, well, these pyramids are like the Pyramid of the Sun is built. Here we go, water, and the importance of water is right. built over a sacred well deep right. down in his, 
in its guts. You know, mm-hmm. This is mm-hmm. built over a well. And there is a lot of muttering and whispering going around amongst some of the guides and so on. The, the, the underneath this pyramid, underneath this pyramid are extensive, uh, uh, passageways and tunnels and one guy said they go all the way to the sea from central Mexico to the sea mm-hmm. <clears throat> and the same legends for instance uh, uh, are abundant in the Boyne Valley you know that there's mm-hmm. a, quite a vast uh, 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 subterranean tunnel complex that connect well they found the temple underneath the, the Terra the big hill Terra right another interesting word Terra by the way anyway and uh, and uh, then I get a call from a friend that you and I know about. He's sort of a ex-forces type, you mm-hmm. know, that's been in the government. Yeah, I know he was a encoder, decoder. So he calls me up and he says he told me a tale. So here we go with an ex-forces tale. He said a friend of his <laughs> entered some sea caves. An ex-Navy SEAL entered some sea caves uh, south of Dublin somewhere, and they uh, sort of angled up uh, to where they became dry, and he his <laughs> scuba gear <laughs> and kept going hmm. and uh, he was equipped apparently for exploration because he explored and kept going and kept going for several days Wow! and he came up in some old Irish lady's basement in the Boynton <laughs> County East <laughs> in the Boynton Valley and came up from a, what appeared to be you know her house was built over an old dry well right. <laughs> and he comes up there and then here's this ex-Navy SEAL and this rather uh, blustery Irish grandma and they had an (laughs) interface and she told him to get the blinkity blink out of there (laughs) and he didn't argue. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So that's a tale for you. Incredible. Incredible. Well, hey, let's let's take a break. I'm going to throw a song in the in the player here and uh, we got uh, we got about 30 minutes left and uh, we'll take a we'll take a short break here we're talking to Kent Stedman uh, incredible conversation Kent uh, from cyberspaceorbit.com uh, hopefully you're you're following along with us and um, and uh, enjoying this as much as I am so we'll be back in just a few minutes here with uh, Kent Stedman Makes much 
All right. There we go, Ken. A little bit Pearl Jam on the radio at 4.30 in the a.m. KOPN 89.5 FM. Missouri source for awesome radio, Radio Orbit, here with Kent Stedman. Man, Kent, let's uh, get back to it. we got a half hour. we got, I don't know, we got probably 25 minutes. I'm not going to take any more breaks for the, rest of the, uh, for the rest of the show here. I'll take, we'll stop at about 5 to... Five. To, I guess what is it about three uh, thirty there? No, about two thirty there. Your time, right? Yeah. All right. We'll stop at about uh, five minutes till three your time, and I'll play one more song to get us out of here, and then uh, I'll turn it over to my friend uh, Carol Greenspan, who comes in at five a.m. every Sunday morning and does uh, she does a show called Jewish Spectrum, and she plays some really cool music. And uh, anyway, so we'll turn it over to her in a half an hour. And in the meantime, we're talking to Kent Studman. That was Pearl Jam from No Code. That song is called Present Tense, and it's a fitting topic. We need to live in the present tense, not in the past, not in the future. There's only this continuous now. And so uh, speaking of that, let's get on with it, man. What's up? Let me read you an ode. We were talking about mythology a few minutes ago. Yeah. I'm going to read you this verbatim. This was written by an Irish, I mean, a Welch prince, uh, who's, uh, I think he's one of my ancestors, probably. His nickname was Mad Dog. Anyway, Maddock was his name. Yeah, I remember a long time ago on the site, not long, maybe a year or two ago, there was a little investigation on him, and it went back into your own roots, and I remember that, Kent. Well, it goes back into the, what we've been talking about, which is this incredible array of architectural mounds. Right. Cairns, Passage Cairns, whatever they are in, in the Boyne Valley. Well, here's this ode, okay? Okay. It goes like this. Uh, Maddock am I, the son of Owain Gwynedd, with stature large and comely grace adorned. No land at home nor store of wealth my mind was whole to search the sea. Holy cow. Yeah, well, anyway, that's what he did. He he loaded his crew in this in this sort of Viking-looking boat right. <laughs> with a dragon sail, and they under the tutelage, interestingly enough, of a druid who encouraged him, uh, highly encouraged him to go back to the uh, the new world and do some looking around, you know. And that's what he did. And so we're kind of rewriting history. Now, if it's true, around 1150, 1180, Maddox Owain Gwynedd set sail, and he traveled up South America along the coast, and then and he finally landed with his party in, in Alabama, at Mobile Bay, Alabama. Now, where he landed is this huge mound complex. <laughs> now, the question is, did he build these mounds, or something else, you know. Uh, in the United States, and right there in Missouri, you Missourians, there's there's these incredible, there are tens of thousands, tens of thousands of immense mounds. Uh, St. Louis was Mound City. Right. And, uh, Cahokia, right? Cahokia, you know, which right. is a huge mound city, which you can still visit. Right, and, and remember, there's actually a guy that I need to get in touch with. Maybe we'll get him on the air here one of these days. Maybe we'll get both of you guys on the air, but Remember, you hooked me up with him maybe a year ago. But anyway, he's a guy, I think, in the Missouri area here. And he talks about a whole terraform thing that he... I, I think it's sort of what you're talking about, these series of mounds that are actually not independent. They're actually connected, and when you connect them, something else comes out. The Missouri Mystery Mound. Now, you 
folks there should look into that. Uh, you've got mounds there, lots of them. One of them, I, uh, you know, I need to come out there and visit Mike and sort of mill around a little bit because uh, we're talking about a mound that's far enough in the backwoods. It's, it's still rather undisturbed, and it has entrances and passageways, and it's surrounded by these uh, rather immense sculpted effigies of uh, various animals. And then you go inside it, and boy, you go into another dimension. <laughs> uh, what this all boils down to is uh, we're talking about here, we're talking about a global civilization, a very high development a long, long time ago, you know, and with the tens of thousands of mounds in the United States and pyramids in every, uh, continent, every, every continent, right? Every continent. And uh, and all of these all these alignments now we're seeing these star alignments all over the place now it wasn't just a you know it wasn't just a fluke where it happened in one place we're seeing star alignments all over the globe now. Well, who is that guy that Iroquois guy that we met at the uh, Mike and I had the opportunity to uh, to visit with some of the traditional elders mm -hmm. in in, uh, in Colorado a couple in of years Colorado ago. Colorado a few years ago. And who was the guy with Dwayne? Was that his name? Yeah, his name was um, Walking Turtle. Walking Dwayne, Turtle. Dwayne Walking Turtle. Yeah, he lives here in Missouri. Well, I was really interested in talking to him because in my uh, mixed blood, I I have one line that goes back to the to the Passamaquoddy Indians mm -hmm. up in Pacific Northeast, right? Yeah. Or I mean the Atlantic Northeast. Yeah. So I right. was talking to. Walking turtle about this, and he said, "Oh yes," he says, uh, "It's very profound in our oral tradition that we met up with some big old redheaded guys, <laughs> fought them, and, and all kinds of battles." <laughs> right. And these are the Celts, probably. Yeah. Well, uh, see, uh, when Lewis and Clark tromped out west in, the, in their expedition, uh, Meriwether Lewis was—he was Welch himself, and he had heard many rumors about uh, Welch Indians <laughs> and prior expeditions uh, I'm trying to think of the guy's name uh, and we got red-headed mummies they found too right? yeah prior <laughs> expedition George Catlin went out ah, there Catlin, all yeah. by himself he was a lawyer that decided to go out west before everything got uh, disturbed out there and mm -hmm. meet with some of the Indians and uh uh, well, he met some tribes that later disappeared due to, to smallpox hmm. infection. One of them was the uh, uh, Mandan Indians. Yeah, the Mandan. They were yeah. really interesting. He painted their pictures. They're really interesting people. Like the young women had very pale skin and blue eyes, and they had this silver hair. You know, <laughs> I mean, silver hair in their early teens, their teens really beautiful he said they were beautiful people well some of their words he he understood that they were pure welch wow and uh, he went all the way to the to the west coast encountering stories of the welch indians and uh, even though that that history and uh, the science is very confused about it all now the indians remember it and uh, now some of these uh digs that have been going on around the country down at uh, spirit lake in in the Nevada mm -hmm. and uh, Kennewick Man, they're finding right, right. they're finding uh, that they're discovering that perhaps many families lived here, and that uh, 
there was more than one type of people here. Of course, we give credit to the uh, to the Native American now for enduring through it all, all right. you know, and all right. keeping this history. My gosh, I know, and it really was something that was by design meant to be eliminated fully, but it, uh, luckily it hasn't been so. So anyway, uh, it'd be interesting for me to come out sometime to Missouri and talk to some of you Missourians about this, the, the, the mounds there. Right, right. You know, I'm sure there are some people around here, and, and uh, probably some older folks that know a lot about this stuff, and... Uh, Boy, that's a that's a that's a, a real interesting investigation that we can that we can uh, we can look at right here at home, and it's really something that uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to get more involved. I got to get you out here, Kent, and me and you will go hunting around. So yeah, <laughs> and pick some tunes. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Mike and I, you know, we may talk philosophy on and on into the early dawn, but uh, at, in our hearts and spirits, where we like to play music. And Mike was out here not long ago. Oh where we, man, I think exchange some tunes. <clears throat> I'm, you know, what my project now is I'm building uh, musical instruments and really kind of digging it. I got all these cool woods. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm, I've got, uh, I hijacked one of Kent's uh, dulcimers and brought it home with me after my trip to Seattle a few, well, it was about a month ago or maybe a month and a half ago. But yeah, we went, went, uh, saw some great music and actually got to play uh, some great music with some super talented guys. The, uh, actually, we got their CD here now at the station, the Sweets Mill. Bluegrass band. What's the full name of the band? I forget. Sweet Smell. Uh, Sweet Smell Spring Band. Ah, it's Sweet it's Spring a bunch, band. Of, bunch of guys. We're all old coots now. But when we were younger in the San Joaquin Valley, there was this uh, bard there named Kenny Hall. Kenny Hall. And, uh, Kenny Hall, he's a blind fiddler, and he's, he's a walking encyclopedia <laughs> of music that was written before 1910. <laughs> And he taught us all this, he calls it old-timey music, it's sort of bluegrass. He doesn't like the word bluegrass, he likes old-timey, because he right. plays the tunes that were written before the bluegrass thing happened. Right. And uh, the first night I, time I met him, he came into my house, and, and uh, I had a mandolin there, which he wasn't packing one, and I said, here, does this work? And he played ten hours straight. Ten hours straight, never repeated the tune. <laughs> Oh my God! So see again, that's what the human. <laughs> yeah. The, the human. We're talking human potential here. Oh yeah. Like the Shawnee in Ireland, the people that keeps these myths, right, and, right. and uh, uh, that can store this information right. in their in their brains and and be able to to transmit it to those willing to hear or to listen. Right. Right. Yeah. They're they're. It's it's crazy because it's still um, it's something that I firmly believe that we're all capable of. At least we're born capable of it. I don't know if uh, by the time you're my age or your age, if we can pull it off anymore because of all the enculturation and conditioning and things that we go through as humans in our culture. But I think that when we're born, we we all got that potential to do uh, to do to do things beyond what most people would even consider reasonable in any means, you know. I think I think that we're capable of just incredible things, so. Well, to do it all, I say, you know. Don't let your imagination wither on the vine. Right, but, right. Don't, but don't uh, deny your analytical capacity, too, because look what science has given us. we got these incredible space problems. The Internet is amazing. Too. Oh, man. 
that you might be a little bit gun shy about sometimes, but you can look. You can go to the internet and look through the eyes of spacecraft that are out orbiting around the sun or plunk down on the surface of Mars. Right. <laughs> Mars is another story, and what the opportunity rover is picking up there is just mind blowing. Right, right. We'll have to we'll, we'll have to do another show and we'll talk about Mars. <clears throat> Yeah, there are all these little blue balls all over the place right, in these right. craters up in Mars. And I got a, there's a fellow. Gerald. Gerald. He right. got a hold of me and he said, well, we got these things out in the Four Corners area. He lives out in the Anasazi land. Oh, man. Four Corners area. And Here we he go, sent man. me in the mail. He sent me these little azurite, malachite spheres. And they're sitting right here about two feet away within reach. And the... And they're dead ringers for these little blue balls that are all over the place by the billions. <laughs> yeah, to Anastasi land, you know, that's, that talk about monuments and uh, alignments. There's a lot of that going on down there, too. So, boy, oh, boy. Mars is a fascinating place. I've gotten images recently from the European Space Agency. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sometimes I think the UK has given us a straighter picture of what's what's up there. Yeah, my yeah, I I my uh, my trust level for NASA is about as low as it's ever been. So anyway. Well, see, uh, Percival Lowell was the greatest the Mars oh. astronomer ever around. Right, by yeah. far, by far. And uh, you know what he observed in his lifetime had every man in the street back during his era believing. There was life on Mars. I mean, it was nobody ever questioned it. Right. It was just common. It was you just go out the, and talk to some guy. Oh yeah, there's Mars. And sure. then uh, uh, the science fiction writers got their start. H. G. Wells and oh, Jules Wells. Verne. Jules Verne. Sure. They began to write these incredible stories about Mars. Uh. <laughs> and so every man, the mythology and the, the experience at that time. Uh, under the influence of Percival Lowell was that, yeah, there's Mars up there. I mean, there's life up on Mars. Right. And uh, I don't know what happened. Another sort of wave of uh, Mars investigators came along and just squelched that idea. Boy, it's amazing how, <laughs> amazing how often that's happened in our, in, our, uh, in our country's brief history, how many times we've had incredible advances that have been, for some reason uh, or another, political or... Uh, I don't know what the motives are, profit or money or whatever, but, man, I tell you, it's really unfortunate. We've had so many great, I mean, I, I think of Tesla, you know, I think of Wilhelm Reich, I think of uh, uh, Royal Raymond Reif, you know, I thought, you know, Percival Lowell, and then it go, the list goes on and on, and you can go back to Galileo, <laughs> you know. Yeah, what I think happened is that there were certain elements that came into astronomy that, that were sworn almost by oath to maintain a, a, a dogma that, you know, it's the old battle between religion and science. Well, right, they right. they sort of invaded astronomy, and the, 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 they were sworn by oath to maintain whatever they found <laughs> that contradicts the uh, uh, medieval dogma to just put the squelch on it. Yeah, uh, and we've got we and what do we have? We've got the Vatican running one of the most important telescopes in the country over there in uh, what is it, Kitt Peak at uh, Arizona University of Arizona. <laughs> yeah, well, there are a lot of fine Jesuit scholars. Oh, and I agree with that. I agree. But and we owe them a lot. But they're, but you know, at the same time, they have a belief system that they want to filter everything. Well, we all do that, you know. Right, right. 
And so they're in the uh, University of Arizona. They're in uh, NASA and Hubble. They're very influential, mm-hmm. influential people. And they're still in some, you can find papers 